Greetings, scholars, and welcome to Following the Gong, a podcast of the Shire Honors College at Penn State. Following the Gong takes you inside conversations with our scholar alumni to hear their story so you can gain career and life advice and expand your professional network. You can hear the true breadth of how scholar alumni have gone on to shape the world after they ran the gong and graduated with honors, and learn from their experiences so you can use their insights in your own journey. This show is proudly sponsored by the Scholar Alumni Society, a constituent group of the Penn State Alumni Association. I'm your host, Sean Goheen, class of 2011 and college staff member. If this is your first time joining us, welcome. If you're a regular listener, welcome back. Christopher Wilson, class of 2006, is a senior associate in the Washington, D.C. office of the international law firm Baker Botts. His practice there focuses on civil antitrust and other complex commercial litigation. He earned his B.A. in political science with honors from Penn State's College of Liberal Arts and went on to earn his J.D. from Stanford in 2012. He played running back and fullback for the Nittany Lions in his first and second years as a scholar. This episode will be helpful to any scholar who is facing obstacles, and particularly student-athletes, as Chris talks about his experience of nearly dropping out before leveraging relationships to stay and succeed. You can read Chris's full bio and a more detailed breakdown of episode topics in the show notes on your podcast app. With that, let's get into our conversation with Chris following the gong. Chris, thank you so much for joining me here on Following the Gong. I'm really excited to talk to you, dive into your story. I think it's a really fascinating one. Really excited for our scholars to hear it. And I think a great place to start that is, how did you first come to attend Penn State and the Honors College? I know there were other options that were recruiting you that were also great institutions, but why us? What drew you ultimately to Penn State and the Honors College? Well, thanks, Sean. Uh, Thank you for having me on. I'm happy to be here. So as far as Penn State, so I was... a pretty highly recruited football player coming out of high school. Penn State was one of the schools that was very actively recruiting uh, recruiting me, but I was also being recruited by um, you know a few dozen other schools, and chief among them was, uh, at least from my perspective, chief among them were the schools that could be conceived or like were generally considered the you know the top schools, uh, at least that were played that had division one football, but also were, were excellent, uh, academic programs. So Stanford and Duke were among them, uh, UVA and Michigan were among them. The Ivy leagues were among them too, but I was, um, concerned about, uh, you can't give athletes full scholarships there. So my family couldn't afford school and, uh, we're leery about loans. So, um, Ivy leagues were axed out of convenience, but Stanford was still there. Duke was still there. You know, the public Ivies were still there. And, um, I was, as I was going back and forth, you know, I'd go up to to Penn state. I went up to Penn state more than any other school and, uh, just fell in love with the campus, fell in love with the atmosphere of the, uh, of the overall university. Um, of course, fell in love with the program. Uh, it's a great, uh, athletic program, uh, at Penn state, of course, um, one of the best historically. So that was a big driver, but 
I was, you know, candidly, Stanford was in the lead. Stanford, Duke fell out because Duke didn't have quite the, the football program, but Stanford was in the lead until <clears throat> the recruiting coaches asked me to come up and then invited me to the honors college. You know, they they said they sent me the the metrics saying, you know, students from the from the mid Atlantic area from Pennsylvania who could otherwise go to these top schools in the country uh, often will come to to Schreier. Uh, they will come to Penn State because of Schreier. So that competition is there. That level of academic excellence is there. And we think you should try it out or at least give it a shot. So I came up and um, I spoke with uh, de- the who was then the dean, uh, Cheryl Ochterberg of the Honors College, and had a really fantastic conversation with her and a fantastic conversation with a few other um, uh, Honors College staff. Um, I think at that point, I spoke with a couple of professors as well. And I came away just really satisfied that I wasn't giving up anything by uh, going to Penn State rather than, you know, picking the the quote, the Stanford's of the world. And that really, the Honors College is really what put me, put it, the school over the top. Um, just the, that comfort that I was going to get the excellent education uh, that I could pair with at least uh, the aspirations of a football career. So you wanted to play football, but I have to take a step back. Where did you play your high school football? I played in Catonsville, Maryland. So it was a small public school just outside of the city of Baltimore. Not a highly, not a, a, a very big uh, school for, for sports in general and football. But uh, I stood out um, in part because I was the biggest and fastest person on the field. When you're in high school and those in the, with playing against small public schools, you don't really have uh, people who were who fit that mold, and there were there were I guess some there was some word of mouth that came out because I was I guess the you know the smart kid who was the respectful football player who was also uh, better than everyone else on the field. So um, the word of mouth got out, <laughs> and uh, little by little, people started coming to to visit. But um, yeah, no, it was um, shout out to. Cadenceville, Maryland, for sending me to Penn State, at least. So you mentioned that you had football aspirations, but obviously that is a time-limited career for those who even do make it to the NFL. And if you want to hear more about that, you can go back and listen to our episode with Stefan and Hillary Wisniewski. Great conversation there. Shameless plug. But Chris, obviously you had to have some kind of what would I do after football in mind. So what drew you to pick your major when you got to campus? Yeah. So um, that was, you know, the the balance of academics and athletics was really the sort of main driver for my picking schools in the first place. So that w- it was understood that, you know, football might or might not work out, but I wanted to be able to, you know, have some good academic foundation for, you know, for whatever happens next. But um, as far as picking my major, it was more, you know, where I, where my strengths were and where my preferences were. As far as credits were concerned, I double majored in poli sci and English, but I could only pick it. I could only, I didn't want to write two theses. So I had to pick uh, pens or I had to pick poli sci as my actual, uh, my actual major for, for honors purposes. But I went that route because I really like the the practice that's available in both of those majors of really exploring intellectual, you know, and substantive ideas. So um, in English, you could sit there and, you know, learn about the the history of, of, of famous scholars, write to the best of your ability, learn to hone those skills, those persuasive writing skills. Poli sci was just a, uh, a real interest to me. I was uh, the, the inner workings of this, of the United States government and how it interacts with uh, the states has always piqued my interest. And I could also build those analytical skills. Uh, through that through that major as well, and at Penn State, poli sci for honors purposes is a, is a quantitative major. So um, my thesis had to be 
uh, grounded in statistics. So I was able to get that skill set as well. So speaking of that thesis, can you tell us what that experience was like and what advice you have for students as they work on completing it, whether it's in a quantitative field like political science or really anything? My thesis experience was was an interesting one because, um, you know, there's that it's essentially a three-year process um, to to choose your to choose your thesis. You got to go through, pick the get the required courses in your major, and then select your thesis advisor. Select your I mean, um, you're going to get an honest advisor, but you know, identify your thesis advisor and start that process as early as possible of sort of working on the ideas. Uh, if it's quantitative, identifying the data set, figuring out the developing your skill set so that you uh, could actually work within the data. So as a part of that, I mean, I what really really helped me was the fact that I developed a relationship with both my honors advisor and my thesis advisor. So these were, these are Michael Berkman, um, who was my honors advisor, and um, Major Coleman, who was in the African American Studies Department um, at the time. I think now he moved up to SUNY uh, State University of New York. Over the over the years, I actually met both of them. I think before I, like as a part of the recruiting experience for football, the coaches at Penn State were very thorough in terms of making sure that I was comfortable with the academic environment at Penn State. And as a part of that, they introduced me to a, a number of professors. In any event, I you know took the time to go to those professors' offices to sit with them. There was a point um, end of my sophomore year, going into my junior year, where football started not to not to work out at all for me, and um, just because of a, a series of injuries and uh, my grades starting to fall, and the and you know that got to the point where it was you know sort of threatening my. Uh, my ability to maintain the GPA uh, for the Honors College. That was when I started going to these professors and started going into the Honors College too. But I went to those two professors and they were able to support me as I was going through that process. So those, I mean, in terms of, so that's going back to your question about what the thesis experience was like. It starts with your relationships with, with your Honors Advisor and your Thesis Advisor, I think, because... Uh, especially as I started getting into the, the the data, like the process of actually writing my thesis, I would spend weekends with Professor Coleman uh, in his office just crunching numbers. Then we'd go out and grab tea. And when my thesis, when I submitted my thesis, Professor Berkman took us out for took us out for beers, all of his honors advisees. I still talk to, I, I just, I was emailing uh, Professor Berkman earlier this year, actually, or late last year, I think. Those relationships both help calm you as you're going through uh, the thesis process, and they provide guidance and mentorship to make sure that you're going down a correct path. Um, like, for instance, with uh, my thesis, I, I initially started with a data set that I thought was going to hit the, the the issues that I needed. So my thesis was about essentially generational change in political affiliation among African-American communities and its effects on uh, voting habits across generations. I initially started with a data set and uh, Dr. Coleman, for about six months, pushed back on me, said, I don't think this is the right one. I don't think this is the right one. And I kept saying, I think I can do it. I think I can do it. And eventually, um, you know, he prevailed upon me just because, you know, he, he and I had long conversations about what I was trying to do with the data, what sort of analyses I was trying to implement. And that guidance, you know, actually it clarified and helped structure my ultimate thesis. So I can't I can't overstate the value of the relationships that you can build with your with your honors advisor and your thesis advisor. These are in a campus with 50,000 students in it. This is your these are your opportunities to really develop these close personal relationships with with professors who are leaders in their field and who actually care about you. They have a vested interest in ensuring that you complete your thesis. For me, especially going into my senior year, it was an open question whether or not I was going to be able to do it. But uh, Major Coleman and, and uh, Michael Berkman really helped guide that process for me. That's the that if, if there's one takeaway I can I can 
I can offer. It's build those relationships and value them. I think that is a really solid point. I also like that you mentioned about starting early. You don't really want to do too much in your first year. But by the time you hit your second year, it's good to start thinking about those topics. I know kind of to your point with what you were saying about, hey, this isn't the right data set. This isn't the right data set. Harken me back to also in the same department, I pitched an idea for a thesis to a different faculty member. And she was like, this is a really cool idea, but the data doesn't exist. So you need to come up with something different because you're not going to be able to do what you want to do. And and I think that's really great that they're that honest with you and saying, hey, this is how you can succeed. And, but it takes, it's incumbent on you as the scholar to really help start building those relationships. So I think that's really great advice, Chris. Yeah, no, and it's not, it's, you know, it's not necessarily all about, you know, towards the thesis. You know, they, again, these, your honors advisor and your thesis advisor are there to help guide you um, to make sure that you graduate with honors. But they are genuinely vested in, they have a vested interest in your success. Building their relationships just as humans. Um, not as, you know, what they can do for you uh, in terms of graduating with uh, with your honors with as a Schreier Honor Scholar, but just building their relationships overall can help grow you as a person, but also enhance your student life. So f- I'll, I'll give an example where I, I keep jumping back and forth here, but to summarize a, a key point in my career at, at Penn State, when I first got to Penn State, I got hurt. I ruptured, I ruptured one disc and herniated two others in my back, had to get back surgery. And then over the course of my first two years playing football, just had this procession of injuries. Over the course of that process, you know, my grade started to fall and I needed to make a choice, essentially. Was I going to try to push through and maximize my athletic career? Was in, in the process, potentially drop out of the honors college, you know, make drastic academic choices? Or am I going to just, you know, knuckle down and focus on making sure that I graduate as best as I could? Could. And I chose the latter option. So I had to leave the football team and I went to speak to Dr. Berkman soon after I stopped playing football. And, you know, he was thinking about, he was proactively thinking about the things that I could do to sort of help prepare me for drafting my thesis, um, to help build my resume. And he identified a program at Duke. It was like, it's basically a pre-PhD program for diverse, like poli-sci students. It's like an intensive six-week course where you learn database analysis, statistical analysis, statistical approaches. And I hadn't heard of it. He said, Chris, I think this would be a good idea for you. I will write your recommendation. I will, you know, call the people I know down there and make sure that you at least have a shot to get in. And that sort of, that didn't come out of, you know, him necessarily just, you know, wanting to make sure that I graduate with honors. He actually cared. But that was, uh, you know, that was before my senior year. So it was the process that started my junior year. So um, that whole process of thinking about what you need to do, working with it, it doesn't, have, you don't have to be intensive about it when you're, you know, in your sophomore or junior year, but be thinking about it, be thinking about what you need to do in order to structure your ability to write your thesis and just be speaking with your, with your advisors. It's a helpful process. It's going to be a deliberate process, but it's a helpful one in the long run. So Chris, I want to thank you for talking about your, your story there. And I want to dive a little bit deeper. So a lot of our scholars are involved in a lot sometimes many you know too many things that they get involved in you know we've had previous episodes where we've talked about folks who've done research they've been on the thon executive committee they're involved in homecoming they do internships all these things and we do value that as a college but there is a point where you start getting diminishing returns on being involved and you faced a hard choice can you walk us through what your mindset was and how scholars who maybe are trying to choose between different things they get to a point where they're thinking i can't do all of these things and I need to pick what my priorities are. You know, what are what are some things you considered some criteria and how you walked through that decision? And ultimately, obviously, you graduated with honors. You're here on following the gong. You wouldn't be otherwise. So 
you you overcame that challenge. What advice would you give to students who are trying to balance that and realize that they maybe took on too much? Yeah, yeah, no, it's it's a physical response that you get once you. <clears throat> I I can totally empathize with with those scholars who think that it's the only way you can have it is if to have is if you have everything all at once. You know, you come out of high school being told that you're you know the top of the class, you're you're Scott. The sky's the limit as far as your future is concerned, and you want to make sure that you have as many options available to you. So you try to do as much as you can, as often as you can. And while that's a, you know, it's a laudable goal, uh, as you said, Sean, it does have diminishing returns over time. And for me, the crux of the matter was when injuries started compounding in football. So that sort of limited my ability to, to really contribute as much as I was, you know, committed to trying to be the best that I could be on the football team. I was, you know, I was literally hamstrung by, by, by injuries and by, you know, the fact that, you know, it's a very, very competitive team. Uh, you know, these were excellent. A lot of, uh, a lot of my teammates went on to the pros. Um, a lot of ones that didn't are excellent, excellent football players. In addition to fighting my own body, I was fighting, you know, for not for a roster spot, but for, you know, playing time with these play with these with these uh, with my teammate. If I was fully healthy, you know, it'd be a coin toss as to whether or not, you know, I'd, I'd have some success on the field. And then you married that with the fact that I was my grades were just just in a precipitous decline my sophomore year, just because I was so distracted from what was the real priority, which is making sure that I, you know, got the best education I could, did as well as I could in class. If I could give any advice to the current and future scholars, it would be that you have to prioritize. In the, I'm a lawyer now, and in law, we call it triaging. You can have 10 things to do, but there are three things that absolutely positively have to get done. And then everything else you can prioritize as a at a secondary and tertiary level. You know, it's a matter of making those choices. You know, for me, it was, I could not let my grades drop. I could not drop I could not fall out of the honors college there was no net for me I didn't have like I said parents can't afford college I was going to drop out I actually did drop out that's so that's a funny story um I can I can follow up with with that uh, after this after I complete this answer but uh ultimately I made that choice that my academic standing was more important than these extra things that I that I that were very very important to me in my life but that ultimately if I lost these if I lost this academic standing, my life would be dramatically different. I knew it at the time, and I knew that it was that it was going to have consequences in the future. So I I made that made that choice, and that's what I would recommend to to current and future scholars is if you're getting dragged down, if you're getting mentally distracted, if you're getting physically exhausted by everything that you have to do, it's okay to say, okay, I have to focus on this. Therefore, I cannot do this. It's okay to do that. And it's okay not, you're going to have the rest of your life to stress yourself out. And given the, given the sort of ambitions that we have, you are certainly going to put yourself in the position of stressing yourself out. But as it stands in college, you need to focus on what's truly, truly important. And those things that you can do, by all means do. But if it gets to if it gets to the uh, overburdening, that triage that triage exercise is going to be important. So before we get to your story about, or maybe this is tied to it, so take this next question as you will here, Chris. You know, a lot of our students, they may pursue opportunities on campus in different leadership roles, or there's an internship that they really want, and they may not get it. Obviously, football was probably a huge part of your identity, and then you had to give that up. So how did you adjust to life as a scholar 
post football. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, that does tie into the dropping out or so it was, uh, I thought I dropped out basically. So end of the right before junior year started, I went to talk to coach Paterno. I told him that try as I might injuries were too much. My grades were falling and I greatly appreciate the opportunity. I sat down in his office and I, I can't thank you enough for the opportunity, but I have to make a choice. And this is the choice that I made is for, to make sure that I can at least pursue uh, focus on academics. Then I went to the honors college and I talked to the staff there and said, Hey, I appreciate the opportunity, uh, but I'm uh, no longer playing football. So I presume this means that I will not be able to, uh, to stay at Penn state anymore. Candidly, I was, I was planning to go back to Baltimore, start working in a box factory, save up money, and then try to apply to university of Maryland. I actually went back home um, and I was laying in bed and uh, I get a call from the football team, from somebody on the football team who said, hey, where are you? <laughs> and I said, I don't, um, I, I talked to Joe, I'm not, I'm no longer on the team. And he said, basically what had happened was uh, after I spoke with Coach Paterno and spoke with Dean Ochterberg and other staff at the, at the Honors College, Dean Ochterberg and Coach Paterno actually had a meeting and reached an agreement that would allow me to stay in school. So how it worked was Coach Paterno would keep me on football scholarship for my junior year. And then Dean Ochterberg would find a scholarship for me for my senior year so that I was going, <laughs> I was going to be able to stay in school. That uh, was a tremendous act on both of their parts. And I, I to this day, I, I uh, am endlessly grateful to both of them. But that's, you know, that's it feeds into how my transition worked away from away from football, because, you know, it was <sighs> There was an adjustment. It was a very, very significant adjustment because your day is scheduled. Your day is is from the minute you wake up until, you know, nine, ten o'clock at night, your day is scheduled when you're playing football. And it's probably the same when you're, you know, on most of the athletic teams at Penn State. Losing that structure is it, it took some time to adjust to because all of a sudden, you know, it's 6 a.m. and I don't have to be in the be in a training room or it's 5 p.m. and I don't have to go to video or it's 7 p.m. and I'm not in uh, study hall. The process was a was a was a long one and it took some time because Penn State is not a um, if you want to be distracted at Penn State, it's very easy to be distracted at Penn State. So knowing that the reason that I had to leave the football team in the first place is because I was too distracted sort of helped give me a little bit of discipline in terms of, uh, you know, what was happening next. So it was a lot of exploring Penn State, what it had to offer, but also a lot of just closing out the distractions, closing out the noise. I have work to do. I have to do this work. You pick the times. You pick the times when you can engage and when you have to, you know, just buckle down and get the work done. But at the same time, I would I would caution the scholars against getting so deep into, you know, the work that they have to do, the organized activities that they have to do, that they miss the opportunity to really enjoy what Penn State is. Penn State is a community. It's got a lot to offer just outside of the classroom. I don't think I would have appreciated Penn State as much as I do if I didn't have that opportunity to really engage with the with the campus, just, you know, meet the meet regular students, go to the bars. <laughs> so <laughs> it was an, a, a somewhat arduous, but um, ultimately enjoyable process of sort of adjusting. But uh, again, the pri you keep your priorities straight. Um, no matter what happens, do the work. If you have to uh, cut out the distraction though to get the work done, you get the work done. I think that's impressive that, you know, you only have so many scholarships on each of the different athletic teams. So that's impressive that one was leveraged on somebody who wasn't able to play anymore. So, uh, and if you're a scholar and you're probably thinking, wait, Dean Achterberg, isn't our Dean, Dean Mather? 
that, you know, we get these emails every week, the student newsletter. And if you don't read it, you should. Uh, and he writes a nice little note to you all in the top of it. And you're like, wait, what? I'm confused. So Dean Actorberg was the first dean of the Honors College. Uh, so she helped uh, get things up off the ground after the gift from the Schreier family. So a little history lesson for you as, you know, two liberal arts grads sitting here talking. We've talked a lot about your time here on campus in Happy Valley, but eventually you left, you graduated. Tell us about your first role out of college because it is a little bit different than what you're doing now. So how did you decide on what was the next? next step right yeah so um so yeah i got my i got my thesis in on time i graduated with honors i got my uh medal my my honors medal when i was graduating the, my senior year i was speaking with my honors advisor and my thesis advisor about uh just continuing in this process you know i've already started to dig into you know quantitative analysis statistical analyses for uh in this political science space i should just go ahead and go through uh, and get a PhD in political science. And that was my initial, like that was the initial long, long-term plan. <clears throat> but then I decided, you know, I, I don't necessarily want to stay on a campus for, you know, the next five years. I want to take some time out, but I don't want to go fully off track of this PhD process. So I started looking for um, basically jobs and research firms. I, those those uh, liberal arts honors majors, I'm sure they'll know Brookings Institution and Rand Corporation and all those things. There are companies around the, uh, mostly in the D.C. area, but around the country, really, that do these statistical analyses that, you know, uh, the survey research with, uh, you know, a political bend or a, a sociological bend. So I ended up finding one of those one of those research firms is called Westat. Western Statistics uh, is what it's called. It's based in uh, just outside DC where I could essentially continue in the vein of, you know, doing research, doing hard quantitative analyses. This was a survey research firm, essentially. So it, it primarily worked, at least in the, the segment that I was working in, the division I was working in. It was uh, evaluating federal programs. It would craft surveys, implement surveys, analyze the surveys, write reports, essentially, evaluating and assessing uh, various funding programs from the Department of Education, uh, Bureau, uh, Department of Justice, a few other departments, federal agencies. That was hardcore work. I mean, it's 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 going into going into schools, implementing surveys, going into uh, prisons, uh, juvenile justice facilities, speaking with students, implementing surveys. We write the surveys, then we implement them, then we do the back end statistical analyses of them, then we write the reports. So it was. Uh, I thought it was very similar to what, and a lot of the people that I work with at Westat were PhDs in political science or PhDs in statistics. So um, it seemed like a, you know, appropriate sort of ac- uh, in line with academia. I could maintain the the sort of the skill set, but take some time out of, take some time off campus, get to explore the world a little bit. That was, you know, it was a very good experience. I got my first taste of academic writing is one thing, uh, writing for reports that are going to be submitted to Department of Justice or Department or submitted to Congress. That's another thing. They don't like flowery language. They like straight to the point. Here's the deal. So um, <laughs> the idea, the the practice of sort of sifting out the flowery, here's 10 pages when it could have been six uh, process, it started there. That was a it was an enlightening experience and it was good. Ultimately, I decided that, you know, the PhD route wasn't wasn't one for me. Just a choice. I think it's just a choice of, of 
future career paths. Academia is a, it's a competitive space. It's a very, very competitive space, uh, especially for PhDs uh, trying to get professorships. At the time, you know, I was three years in or two and a half years in at West Ed, making the choice between PhD programs or something else. And I, you know, after thinking about it a little bit further, I decided on something else. And that process was very, from there, it was actually very straightforward. I'd spent three years um, doing deep research and writing law school. I'm going to go to law school. <laughs> That's just research and writing. That's research and writing too. Okay. <laughs> so, so that's how I ended up in law school. And kind of going full circle, you ended up at Stanford. I did end up at Stanford. I actually wrote in my uh, my uh, essays, you know, talking about my undergrad experience, talking about how I was being recruited for football. I specifically mentioned that I was that I got a scholarship from Stanford in my essay. I don't know if anybody read it or cared about it, but it's uh, it was an it was a verifiable fact had they cared to go back into the football records. So, what was your law school experience like? Especially, you had some opportunities out, like you just described. You were out in the working world for a few years. You had the research background. How did you translate that into your law experience? And a key part of law school as well, I'd love you to talk about is what you do in the summer, those practical experiences and how you leverage those opportunities to set yourself up for success. Law school is a little bit of a different, it, it takes an adjustment from a space like uh, Westat into law school, because again, uh, I spent three years at Westat sort of learning how to adjust my writing to the mode of here's what you're asked, here's what you asked, here's what we did, here's the answer. In law school, at least, you know, especially that first year of law school, the, the basically the style of, of law school is essentially exploration, right? So those scholars who are thinking about law school are going to hear about the Socratic method where professors purport, purport to teach the class by essentially asking questions and getting, getting the student, asking questions to allow the students to reach the conclusion themselves. And that sort of process extends into exams for for law school as well so where you're going to you have to you, there's a heavy amount of but this here's the question it could be this for these reasons or it could be this for these reasons it's essentially the process of getting to maybe maybe yes maybe no but here's what we recommend sort of thing and uh that was an adjustment because I again, I'd spent the last the previous three years saying there's a yes or a no answer. And in law school, it's not necessarily that. It's understanding why it could be yes or why it could be no. The academics were an adjustment, but the the actual process of law school, the 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 practical experiences are what I appreciated the most. They're the summer experiences where you can get an internship, and then at most law schools, they're also going to be what are called clinics, legal clinics, where you can actually get practical experience um, in a courtroom, dealing with contracts, dealing with clients that would be otherwise difficult to get in your regular legal coursework. So um, I took advantage of the clinics as much as possible. You could take you could take up to, at the time when I was there, you could take up to two clinics um, and then you could take an advanced version of one of the clinics that you'd done previously. So I did all of that. After, after my first year of law school, I interned in uh, a school district uh, the legal the legal counsel's office for a San Diego Unified School District, just because I was doing a lot of education work um, at Westad, and it seemed like a you know an interesting area to explore as a lawyer, um, just seeing the the legal side of public education. But a lot of the practical experience was in dealing with my classmates. There are a lot of students in law school who choose, you know, the, again, the, and I imagine a lot of scholars are going to, would be of this mind as well. There are these gold stars I need to get. You know, I need to get a, get on the law journal. I need to publish something. I need to, you know, become a, a research assistant for my 
uh, for a professor so that I could get a clerkship uh, for a judge when I graduate from law school. And that's all good. That's all good and well. And I, if, if you have the ability and interest to do that, uh, I'd recommend doing it. But for those who are a little bit more on the fence about going that route, I would say it's not necessary that you sort of force yourself into that bubble if it's not if it's not something that you think is actually the correct fit for you. So I did a lot of, in addition to, you know, worked in a law firm my second year, um, after my second summer, or excuse me, after my second year of law school, I worked in a law firm. While I was in law school, I did a lot of, uh, I worked, I was in the law school student government. I was the president of the Black Law Students Association. I was a treasurer of the Black Graduate Students Association. I was trying to find ways to really get to know the campus and my classmates and the broader university and just you know developing again it's i say this i said this about uh uh you know your advisors at penn state and i'll say it's a it's a continuing skill that's that's valuable to you developing relationships you know developing you know personal relationships with with people, not just because they can they can benefit you in the future, but because it'll help you grow as a person. You know, being stuck in a in a classroom or a library or a conference room, it can help certain people, but for a lot of people, myself included, relationships help just as much. I'm ten years out of law school now, and you know, there are people who I met in the medical school and the business school at Stanford who um, are not only close friends, but they're moving into positions that might actually be valuable to me as a lawyer. It's important, I would say, to sort of value those relationships and build their relationships even while you're in law school. I've had a couple other attorneys on this podcast before, and a common theme with law school is that there's a lot of things you can do with a JD. Lots of different paths you can go. You can be a general counsel in, say, a for-profit business or a non-for-profit. You interned in a uh, the legal team for a school district. You can be a business owner. You could be a sports agent, lots of different things. What specifically led you to corporate law of all things? And for scholars who may be interested in that path as well, what would help them to know ahead of time to help them be successful? Giving a, a bit of just practical advice uh, for law school, make sure you have, uh, I would recommend that you have a reason to, or you have a, have a plan for when you go to law school. Um, it's not necessarily, I want to do this or I want to be this person. It's just make sure it's not your, like a, just some, oh, I don't know what else to do with my life. I'm going to go to law school. With me, I had, you know, like I said, I had a solid foundation and the sort of skills that were going to be useful in the law that I understood were practical benefits to being a lawyer, the research and writing. A lot of my classmates at Stanford came from varied backgrounds and they're doing exactly what you said they were doing, Sean. Some are, some are they own startups. Some of them are working in, you know, far-flung locations around the world. Some of them are investment bankers. <laughs> you know, so, so um, it's it's uh, it's not necessarily a given that you go to law school to become a corporate lawyer, but for a lot of these, especially the the sort of higher ranked law schools, it's sort of like a it's a given path to go to. These firms are eager to to have highly intelligent, highly skilled eager lawyers uh, coming from these sorts of the upper echelon of law schools. For me, corporate law just, it seemed like a like a good uh, career path to sort of continue again, where my skill set, where my skill set was. And now I do antitrust litigation, which is <laughs> really a continuation of research and writing. And it, it has a, an economic spend and statistics and economic statistics and economics are two entirely separate um, academic fields, but uh, it still does lend some familiarity to the analyses that are required in the, in the type of law that I do. So it seemed like um, 
for me, it seemed like corporate law was an appropriate fit for what I'd been doing and, you know, what my skill set what my skill set was. If I was, you know, talking to a to a current or future scholar who's thinking about law school, I would say some people go to law school um, because they don't know what else to do. Some people go to law school because it helps to clarify their goals in life. Make sure you know that you have a reason to go and don't be beholden to any particular path. Like, don't say, oh, I'm going to be a public interest lawyer. A lot of people say that going into law school and they end up being corporate lawyers. Don't have a, <laughs> be open to the possibilities of of what law school presents to you, especially if you go to a school like Stanford or you go to a school that otherwise allows you to engage with business students and uh, engineers and, you know, the other aspects of graduate of graduate life on the campus that you're at. Don't be afraid of opportunity because, uh, you know, there's a lot of it out there. There are a lot of smart people who are doing very interesting things. And if you happen to build that relationship that, that leads you into something new and exciting, then, you know, You'll be all the better for it. So, Chris, you are a donor to the college. So, first of all, thank you for supporting our scholars. I wanted to ask, what inspired you to do that? There's nothing that made you do that. That's not any kind of requirement. Certainly not for one for being on this show. I've had plenty of folks who are not donors. I've had some who are, some who aren't. But what inspired you to give back and and support current and future scholars the way that you're doing? Yeah, so going back to that sort of pivotal, after I left uh, stopped playing football. And when I thought that I was not going to have any funding, I was going to go work at a box factory uh, and then got the surprise that I was actually still at Penn State. I went to to thank then uh, Dean Cheryl Ochterberg and we had a nice conversation where she pointed out that she she said to me, so Coach Paterno stepped in and said, you know, I was going to, you know, he would cover the scholarship for for this upcoming year. But then she said, even if he hadn't, we would have found a way. And, you know, she mentioned that there are scholarships that are available for just those students who there's a last minute, very important need, like these highly, highly extenuating circumstances where it's just this student has no other option and needs this money. Her discussing that, just saying that, you know, basically the Honors College prepares for these sorts of situations where, you know, when all else fails, we want to keep the student here. Let's do what we need to do in order to keep him here. That resonated with me. That's That still sticks with me. You know, as I started to settle in my career as a lawyer and, you know, <laughs> over time started to save up a little money and uh, get a little settled, make sure like reasonably confident now that I'm not going to be summarily fired 10 years in. I, you know, that sort of thought of, you know, those kids who have, who really have limited options and, you know, worst case, like the, the bottom could fall out. They're operating without a net to begin with. What can we, what can I do in order to, you know, try to fill that gap the way that Dean Ochterberg says that other donors to the Honors College try to fill that gap. So this is the, this is actually the first step. Like this, this donation that I, that I set up, I mean, I'm hoping this is the first, this is the first piece of a, a going relationship with the Honors College because I, I was that kid that didn't have any other option. And the Honors College stepped up. So um, I would like to be that for somebody in the future. And we really appreciate that, Chris. And this podcast originates out of the Development and Alumni Relations Office. So we're a little, you know, kind of our job to do these kinds of things. <laughs> and yeah. obviously, and if you're more, and if you want to hear more about still, you know, jobs and philanthropy, go back and listen to, I think it's episode 13 with Tina Hennessy. It's a great conversation about philanthropy. Really appreciate that, Chris. If you're an alum listening, this is certainly something that you can do as well. So come talk to us. And if you're a scholar who, if you're finding yourself or you have a friend who's also a scholar, who's in a position similar to the story that Chris shared, or maybe, you know, something else extenuating happens with your family or other things where that net falls out from underneath of you, or you don't have one to begin with, come talk to us. 
We care about you. We want to see you succeed. If you're a Shire Staller, we want to get you across that finish line. So come talk to us if you find yourself in that situation like Chris did many not, but not too many moons ago. <laughs> Enough moons. Yeah, and I, I, I just, I'll echo that, Sean. It's it's incredible. Both the resources and the dedication of the Honors College. Like, they don't, you're not a number when you get into the Honors College. You're a real human person. And the, the staff and the university as a whole and the Stryers Connors College, they appreciate that. You're not going, you're not alone. Whether it's a financial thing or, you know, you're struggling in one way or another, the Honors College has resources. They will do what they can to uh, to try to get you through a tough time. Absolutely. We can't guarantee anything, but we will do whatever we can to help you. So, you know, come talk to us if you find yourself in that position. So, Chris, I think you teed up kind of the, I want to move to the last third of our conversation here. How do you feel that your experiences as a scholar, as a Nittany Lion on the football team, as a poli-sci major, how do you feel that these helped you along your path and would you have done anything differently <laughs> besides, maybe, besides maybe getting injured i think i think that's probably one you might, but maybe not maybe that, yeah. that was your that was what was meant to be i'll let you answer that one i always caution against the what would you do differently because you know of the butterfly effect scenario right you know if i pick this one thing to do differently how might that have affect how might that affect everything in my life that that followed it all things considered i like where i am right now there are some a lot of bad and but a lot of good as well. Um, you know, it's a, it's a, I think my experiences at Penn State really helped sort of firm up that that mentality. No matter how, um, what's the best way to say this? Uh, a hearty mentality. You know, this just this reality that you know sometimes life sucks. Bad things are going to happen, but there is always going to be a tomorrow, and you have to keep looking at that. You have to keep saying, okay, well, this was no good, but, you know, I've got other things that are going on in my life that are that are good. And I know that, you know, overall things are going to get better, especially during that that period when I was I thought I was again, I was done. You know, I thought I was, you know, I was going to have to make a really, really dramatic restructuring of my life. You know, I was actually I was, you know, looking at the positive, you know, they well, you know, I have to drop off a little bit, but you know, I can. I can make it. And I was undyingly appreciative. It's just, it's just never going to end. I'll be, I'll go to my grave thanking Dean Octoberg and Coach Paterno. But having that hearty mentality and just saying, you know, life is going to be tough sometimes, uh, but you can do it. You know, th- if anything, I learned that from, from my time at Penn State. Chris, what would you say is your biggest success to date? <laughs> so, you know, that's the... <sighs> I don't, I don't know that I, you know, I can answer that question. I think, again, if you look at everything as a, if you try to look on the bright side of things, then saying what's your biggest success, you know, my biggest success is, you know, being where I am right now, being where I am today, given all the bad stuff that happened in life and all the, all the hurdles that you had to overcome, just being able to say that, Hey, I've got a good career. I'm surrounded by people who respect me. I am in a good position in life, all things considered. I'm just happy with that. You got to have a little humility. (laughs) Success is a, is a relative thing. I'm happy to be here. That is a great approach. And speaking of positions, Chris, one thing I don't think we've actually ever mentioned, we've talked a lot about the football team, but we've never actually mentioned what position you played. So what, where did you line up on the field? Oh, yeah. Oh, I was recruited as a running back. So my my red shirt freshman year was Larry Johnson's fifth year. His 2,000-yard year was my first year on campus. So uh, then I switched to fullback. But yeah, I was a running back uh, overall when I was at, when on the team. So kind of going back to the, the previous question that I asked, you know, biggest success, and, and you had a great answer there, but what would you say is your biggest transformation learning moment 
well, I think that would actually be in law school because like the I got to to Stanford and you know I I'm humbled by you know how brilliant I'm like the people that I'm surrounded by same thing when I was in the honors college you know you get humbled a little bit by recognizing the the intellectual like heaviness that surrounds you but in law school it's it took me some time to realize that you know I can run the same race in a different way that a lot of these people who are sort of you know they want to go for the gold stars and be the the ideal law student I'm like, well, maybe I'm not built for being the ideal law student, but I can succeed in law school and I can build these relationships that I know are going to help me in a different way, even if I'm not going to be, you know, president of the law review or the research assistant for the for the top professor, all these things. It's okay. It's okay to 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 sort of reset your goals on the fly in that in that sort of respect. And that ability to that recognition that it's okay to to adapt. You're not going to get your if you don't get your first goal, reset the goal. Go for that new goal. That, it really hit home when I was in when I was in law school, and that's that's really sort of been a, a guiding approach since then. Great advice. Speaking of advice, how do you view yourself as both a mentor and a mentee? What advice do you have for students as they approach those kinds of relationships? Yeah, again, I mean, I I, I keep banging this horn, but uh, or banging this drum, but it's uh, it's an important one both for you know mentor as a mentor and as a mentee the focus is on the relationship the focus is on getting to know this person as a person rather than as a you know as a box to check off because you're a mentor and you had you signed up for this or as somebody who knows this this particularized knowledge has this particularized knowledge and is therefore valuable to you in the as a as your career you want to know these people as human beings and that actually helps deepen their relationship and gives invests uh, invests both the mentor and the mentee in the relationship and in the future success of of one another. So um, that's how I approach it. I, I want to get to know them as people and then I go from there. Speaking of people, other than maybe Dr. Berkman and Major Coleman, who you talked about and, and Dean Achterberg, are there any professors or friends from your scholar days that you wanted to give a shout out to? <laughs> Well, all of the, so, you know, um, uh, for better or worse, there's been a 100% plus turnover in the football program. But Kirk Deal, I keep getting emails from Kirk Deal. Hope he's doing well. He's, I think he's, uh, he's a staffer now for Penn State Athletics Communications. Wally Richardson. I believe he's still there. Um, he's now there. <laughs> yeah. yeah, Wally Richardson, is, uh, he's a hell of a guy uh, running the academic program at, for the football team. Uh, I hope they're doing well. There's some good people in that program. A reckoning a reckoning rightfully occurred within the program, but I'm glad that there are that there are still some good souls in there. So just final three questions here for you, Chris. As we're wrapping up our time, what's a final piece of advice that you wanted to share but maybe didn't come up organically in our conversation? I mean, one thing I would say for the scholars that are there is I can't overestimate how important it is to to really take the time to try to enjoy yourself while you're in state college. I mean, you're going to go back, you're going to look back 15 years after you graduate. If your experience did not include some of the fun things that, you know, you see other uh, Penn Staters, Penn State alumni talking about and enjoying when they're 35 years old, enjoying a beer at uh they come back for a game or they, uh, they meet up with alumni uh, in their whatever town that they're living in, you're going to feel like something's missing. So I know there's a lot of, especially for scholars, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of people have that urge to, to really just buckle down. I don't, I don't care about the, the parties. I don't care about the football. I don't care about this or that. I just want to get my thesis. I want to do my job. I want to do my work. That's important, but you are in a 
you're in a special place. It's important that you at least try to engage with that in some respects. You know, try to try to have a little bit of fun. Don't stress yourself out too much because there's a lot of ways to have fun at Penn State. That's that's important. Be, open that side up. Make some good memories. Absolutely. College flies by. So that's <laughs> really, really good advice. I recently hit my 10-year mark and I was like, wow, where did that time go? So I, I hardly <laughs> echo that, Chris. If a scholar wanted to reach out to you and, and take this conversation further, What's the best way that they can get in touch with you? Um, yeah, so LinkedIn is is very easy. Um, you can just Google. You can also Google Christopher Wilson Baker Bots B A K E R B O T T S. Just Google it, and I'm going to be. I'll come up as the first link. Uh, but yeah, no, I'm 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 happy to. If you're in DC, I'm happy to meet up for coffee. Uh, you have any want to talk on the phone or discuss by email, I'm happy to be there. Awesome. Thanks for that, Chris. And finally, as is tradition here on the show, if you were a flavor of Berkey Creamery ice cream, what would you be? And as a scholar alumnus, most importantly, why would you be that flavor? (laughs) Especially as a lawyer, Chris, explain your rationale. (laughs) Yeah. Well, no, I think I can be pithy with this one. It's the, there's a sticky, there's a hot, there's this grilled stickies ice cream, right? There sure is. It's one of your flavors. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I believe I had that at one point, at one point when I, when I first came, when I last came out to Penn State, I think that, um, that would fit me pretty well. Uh, just cause I'm a, I, I consider myself to be a, a cool take on an old classic. So, uh, that's, that's how I kind of see myself at least. That is a great, great way to wrap up, Chris. And if, you know, if you get sick of being a lawyer, I think there's maybe some branding and marketing in your future too with, with, with a phrase like that. And I think you're the first person as the time of recording to pick that flavor. So congrats on, on being the first one on that. Hey, it was tasty when I tried it. So uh... it sounds delicious. I haven't had it yet, but I will definitely try to. Chris Wilson, thank you so much for joining me here on Following the Gone. I know you've got to run. You've got lawyer things to do. Thank you so much for joining us here today. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me, Sean. I appreciate it. Take care. Thank you, scholars, for listening and learning with us today. We hope you will take something with you that will contribute to how you shape the world. This show proudly supports the Schreier Honors College Emergency Fund, benefiting scholars experiencing unexpected financial hardship. You can make a difference at raise.psu.edu forward slash Schreier. Please be sure to hit the relevant subscribe, like, or follow button on whichever platform you are engaging with us on today. You can follow the college on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn to stay up to date on news, events, and deadlines. If you have questions about the show or are a Scholar alum who'd like to join us as a guest here on Following the Gone, please connect with me at scholaralumni at psu.edu. Until next time, please stay well, and we are...